Thank you, choir. That was beautiful. Many years ago, Donna Nelson and I did a takeoff on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and this just reminded us that we had Donna play Mr. Rogers, and she was sitting on the chair. I wasn't sure if it was at this church or some other church. We were at a conference. And so we all sang the song, and all of us adult types, we came up and watched her put on the sweater and change the shoes, and it was just a wonderful sense. But it also reminded me of another time of, you know, our neighborhood, our children as such, that so often we hear things and we just go on autopilot. We, we know the story, so we already jumped to conclusion. And so I decided to take that one story, which is not today's story, uh, about um, children, Jesus saying, let the children come to me. And uh, so I'm sitting on the chair and I let, um, I, I set it up of the children coming and just had to imagine that I was surrounded by not just little blonde, blue-eyed children, but children with Down syndrome. And it just gave a different perspective as people heard the message as I took a look at a story from the backside, if you will. And this is what I hope to do today with this story, a familiar story of the, uh, the Samaritan out there. So will you pray with me this morning? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, O God, our rock and redeemer. Amen. One of my favorite Good Samaritan memories is of when I drove home from San Diego after um, a year at college in San Diego and on to, uh, to San Francisco. And I began my first year with just, you know, a backpack and one or two suitcases and, and that suit. But after about three years, I had a lot of stuff. And so when I was driving home, I overstuffed my car and had three or four suitcases, about four or five boxes of books and all the stuff in my dorm. And I'm driving up and I pulled into the state beach off Santa Barbara and just to camp for the night. And I laugh when I pulled into that campground because all that was in there were these enormously equipped RVs and just, you know, all this fantastic roomy campers throughout there. And I used to think that campers were people, not vehicles. And in contrast, I just had my, again, my overstuffed car with all my stuff as well as my cold dinner from Burger King. And uh, hey, I was a poor college kid, okay? And it was a cold and windy night. And as I hunkered down next to my car, I heard footsteps coming up to me. And I peered through the opening of my little mummy bag and I saw a pair of shoes, white shoes, adorned with little brass buckles. This was the 1970s, remember? And as I looked up, there's this man wearing, you know, double knit, I'm not sure he was wearing a leisure suit at that time, but wearing these white pants and holding a cup of hot chocolate for me. Because apparently his wife from the RV saw me and just took pity on me that I was being blown around, just brushing dust off of me. And so she made this hot drink and told her husband, bring this over to me. And oh, oh, how I enjoyed the kindness of strangers. And ever since then, I've not made fun of men who wear white shoes with brass buckles or drive Winnebago's. (laughs) We're continuing our summer travels with Jesus as we look at the many close encounters of the spiritual kind Jesus had with us. And today we'll look at a lesson from a familiar story with new insights, I hope, towards our path and our journey with Jesus. And no, Jesus did not wear white shoes, and his sandals did not have brass buckles, so I'm told. You know, parables are like a joke. You either get it or you don't. 
And when you do get it, you might ask, was Jesus talking about me? And parables are better known as stories told by Jesus to teach or emphasize a point. And we know the good guys and the bad guys of these stories. And we know the teachings or the instruction that we are supposed to take away from each story. Another story if you do it or not, but we do know them. And they're familiar to our faith. And we need to hear them over and over again. And they need to remind us of things we already need to know, as well as need to do. And one of the more familiar stories is this story of the Good Samaritan. We know this story as does all of secular society. They know what a Good Samaritan is. They don't even have to go to church. People know what that is. We know that a traveler was robbed and beaten and left for dead. We can recite from memory how that priest and that Levite both walk by and ignore his desperate situation. And like children hearing the story for the first time, we can make sour faces and go hiss and boo at the priest and the Levite for their cruelty and discrimination. But something about us being adults, somehow it's easier to be sympathetic and accepting to whatever their excuses may have been. Maybe they were late for work, or maybe they just had a sick child or an aging parent, or, or maybe they're on their way to help someone else who had a greater tragedy taking place. And yes, that makes sense. Yeah, they would justify their walking by to do even bigger and more important things, even maybe more spiritual things. And they were just being good stewards of their time. So why stop to help just one person when you can help many? Oh, only if these musings of ours could excuse this behavior, but they don't. Not then and not now. It's only our arrogance and our selfishness that would allow these things to happen. The story begins with a lawyer. Was he talking about me? I don't know. <laughs> and uh, it was a good question that this lawyer asked, but it was asked with a bad motive because this lawyer hoped to trip up Jesus. But it was Jesus who trapped the lawyer, kind of like a, a gotcha. And Jesus knew how to get his attention, as well as ours. And he replies with this familiar story that we call the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan story. But it was also a controversial story when it was told at that time. Did you notice the two who were the after-the-fact witnesses of that crime scene? A priest who is a leader of the church and a Levite who's a layperson of the church. Both kept going on and passing on the other side of that victim on the road. They couldn't see, or maybe they didn't want to see. Maybe they're just trying to get to some important meeting at the church or at the temple. But either way, they did see that man lying on the road, and they did not stop. It was like the beginning of a bad joke. Why did the priest cross to the other side of the road? I don't know. But it was the Samaritan, the Samaritan of all people, an enemy of the Jews who stopped to help the injured man, this humiliated man who had been ignored by his fellow Jews. It was the person who, when the story was first told, would have been the last person anyone would have expected to help. It would have been like an American colonist helping a British soldier during the Revolutionary War or a Sunni Muslim helping a Shiite Muslim in Iran, a black Union soldier who would have been just as shocking to help a Confederate rebel during the Civil War, or during the Reformation, the surprise Catholic 
coming to the side of a beaten down Protestant, man, that would have ignited rumors and stories just like wildfire. But the interesting twist to this parable that Jesus told and to each of these other examples is that the shock goes both ways, like an aftershock from a 7.1. It goes in all directions. The Samaritan was such an outcast of society. It's doubtful that the traveler would have stopped and helped if the roles were reversed. It would have been just as shocking for a Protestant to help a Catholic, as I said, or a black to help a white during apartheid in South Africa, and so on. And maybe that's one of the points that Jesus wanted to make in this story. The details of who in the story are not all that important, but what is significant is that the identities of those who helped and those who passed by are the true shockers to the original hearers of the story. Going back to the good guys and the bad guys in this parable, you'd expect the priest and the Levite, both learned men and religious types, to be the merciful ones. They are the ones who know and are expected to play by the rules. No one expects much out of the Samaritan because he's one of the outlaws. He's one of those guys out there, those on the fringes of society, like the homeless or the undocumented workers, these immigrants. No one really cares what they do as long as they stay in their place and out of everyone's way. But it's the Samaritan who stops traffic. He stops in the middle of the road, he changes his plans, and he goes against the expectations of the day to help a stranger, a Jew. And I know that I can easily find myself in this story. I find myself in many of these characters. In countless times, I've been helped by the person I least expected to come to my aid. But then, why should I be surprised when someone stops traffic for me? Back in April 29, April 29, 1992, while attending a meeting in Malibu, a church meeting, four L.A. police officers were acquitted of violating the civil rights of Rodney King, and six days of widespread rioting began. My meeting was canceled, and I made my way home to San Diego by way of the Pacific Coast Highway because all the freeways were jammed. And going through the side streets, I saw fires, I saw looters, I saw the breaking of windows, and many were laughing on the streets, but there's this one African-American who seemed to be in a heated debate with the others. He stepped into the intersection and began to direct traffic. And when I came to the intersection, a crowd gathered to stop me, but this one man, he took control. He shouted down the others. He looked at me and said, go while you can. For a brief moment, this man was my Samaritan. Jesus said, go and do likewise. You know, being on the receiving end, being helped by a stranger, it shouldn't surprise us. I know that there were times when I've been the priest or the Levite passing someone by. Sometimes I work really hard at convincing myself that what I have to do out there is more important than helping the person right in front of me. But to whom have I been a Samaritan? Have I surprised another by stepping across the confines of society, of decorum, or even a class of citizens just to help someone else who is not expecting or even hoping help from me? And so I want to stop for a moment and take a look at a couple of things that the Samaritan did for the man 
who needed help that we all need to do. First, the Samaritan, he stopped and befriended him. He took time out of his busy schedule just to care. Second, he approached him, not avoided him, not afraid to make eye contact. In other words, we have to learn to walk slowly through the crowd. Third, he got down where he was, for this was the only way he could see his need and know how to help him. He picked him up. He didn't leave him in the same condition as he found him. He took him. He took him. He didn't just tell him where to go or spend the night someplace else. He took him himself. And then he provided for him. And then some. He went the second mile. So where did he get all his resources, this Samaritan in the story? Do you think he took extra cash and everything just in case he ran into a man who was beaten and left on the road? No. It was out of his own pocket, all of what he had, out of what he brought by himself. So what of the priest or the Levite? And so Jesus turns the table on this lawyer and asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. We, and that's all of us, we are the people who are sent. Jesus needs us. The church needs us. The world needs to accept our role as those who are sent into the fields that we talked about last week. And today, we hear the lawyer's question and the very familiar answer, at least familiar to many Methodists. And it goes way beyond the do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with Jesus. No, it goes much deeper than that. Jesus calls us to a committed way of life that places him first and everything else second, a faith that's reflected in all that we say, all that we do, and all that we are. Jesus wants us to set our priorities on the most important areas of life, loving the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. When all this comes first, and everything will fall into place. Last week, I mentioned three letters, three words, D-T-R. Remember what that was? Define the relationship, your relationship with Jesus. And so we have this good Samaritan story. But let me approach it with another POV, a different point of view. We usually focus the attention on the Samaritan or those two religious leaders who preceded him. But what about the man, the victim, whom we assume was a Jew, who was robbed, beaten, and left to die? What do we say about this man who was victimized, robbed, ignored by the priest and Levite, by his fellow Jews even, and then helped by a despised Samaritan? How did he feel about being helped by the Samaritan out there? We need to remember that we're talking about someone who never associated with a Samaritan, not even with passing encounters. People spoke unkindly about those people. They went miles out of the way to avoid that area called Samaria. Furthermore, I'm sure this man hoped he would always remain far away from them. But now in this hour of deepest and desperate need, at a moment of life and death, it is a Samaritan 
who cleans his wounds, dresses them with oil and wine, binds a hurt, lifts him up to his donkey, and then carefully escorts him along this rugged road. And at times, I'm sure the Samaritan speaks comfortingly to this man. And all night long, he sleeps on the floor next to this injured man, attentive to any expression of a pain or restlessness. And I can imagine this Jewish victim overhearing the Samaritan the next morning as he makes financial arrangements for the man's continued care with that innkeeper. So how do you think this victim felt about all this? And that's easy to answer. He was just glad to be alive, but maybe not so fast there. You know, there have been times when I, as a pastor, in a pastoral role, have suggested that a person seek help from a particular awkward source or discuss his or her situation with the employer or, or a family member or someone who offended him or her, only to hear that person answer quickly and vigorously, no way, I'd rather die than talk to him or to her. I don't think that's literally what they meant, but you get the picture. So how do you think it was for this Jewish victim that he felt a certain way conflicted when he was getting all this help from a Samaritan? And I wonder if he whispered a prayer to God, oh, it's good of you, O Lord, to send me help, but couldn't you send me a nice Jewish man instead? Why the Samaritan? Yeah. Oy vey. You and I have a good reason to understand this parable because it's the way of salvation. It's the way salvation has come to us. In these summertime travels with Jesus, as lovely as the title sounds, we are really walking down reality road. And it's as dangerous as a journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, the journey that marks birth to death. It's a road of, yes, beauty and adventure, but it's also filled with wolves and robbers. And you know their names, despair, loneliness, fear, anger, defeat. They spring upon us when we least expect it, when we're not even ready. They beat us up. They leave us lying in the road. And unless help comes, we will die, physically or spiritually. And we hear the footsteps and recognize, oh, here comes a traveler. He's the one who comes to help, and we welcome him because he will let us pay our own way because our credentials and our credit are good. We are deserving and have always had a good record. We've been living, living a good life, but he passes us by. But then a second stranger comes. We appeal to him on the basis of our sincerity. We never intended to get into trouble. It's not my fault. We meant well. Doesn't that count for anything? And he passes us by as well. And then this stranger appears and volunteers to help. At first we say, Ooh, who are you? Oh, no thanks. We decline to explain, it's okay, I can pay my own way. I'm a good person. I'm a deserving person. And the stranger answers, no one can buy what I offer, nor can anyone deserve it but I shall gladly give it to you. And he lifts us up to his donkey, a wondrously awkward beast named Grace. And sometimes we think we'd rather die in our lostness or arrogance rather than humble ourselves to receive the stranger's gift of healing. But the choice is ours. We can stay half dead on the road or 
ride on this donkey called grace to God's safe and eternal lodging. To love one's neighbor is to abolish all boundaries, all divisions. It means seeing things from the other person's point of view and responding to that without regard to outward appearances. The parable of the Good Samaritan shows this. The lawyer who tested Jesus most likely knew that the law could be summarized as eh, loving God and loving neighbor, but Jesus challenged him. You've answered right, whether you learned it in the temple or in law school, but do this and you will live. And this is what Christ is calling us to do in this parable. With all due respect to diligence, wisdom, and safety, we're not called to ask to see the wounded man's identification or proof of address. We're not to confirm what the innkeeper will do with our money, will it be spent on drugs or alcohol. We are not even called to look up spitefully or sourly on those who walk past the one who was in need. Jesus' call is simple. Go and do likewise. But rather than try to justify ourselves, we need to cry out, how? How can I possibly fulfill what God intends? How can I love even those whom I find objectionable? And this is the response Jesus seeks how often, like the lawyer, the priest, the Levite, we try to reduce God's command to love to something less than what it really is. We want to hold on to restrictions that rule out situations that makes us uncomfortable or stretch us beyond our natural abilities, situations that call for some sort of sacrifice on someone else's part but not mine. So we drive past the hitchhiker. We pass by the person who asks for a few coins. We don't always go to the person who may need to receive the love of God. But we live in the hope that when we do answer that call, when that certain someone reaches out, that we will react in a good way to meet that need. We know that only in Christ can we truly love others or wholeheartedly love God. Jesus is calling for something far greater than we can accomplish on our own. And I'm certain that the Samaritan would have been treated poorly by the Jews during his lifetime, yet he is the one who stopped to help this injured Jew. He gave the man medical aid. He took him to an inn to recover and took care of his expenses. Through this timeless story, Jesus not only teaches us to show love to our neighbor, but points us to his ultimate example of love, his death on the cross. As followers of Jesus, and don't forget DTR, define the relationship, we are commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. The degree, the, excuse me, the degree to which we carry out this responsibility lies perhaps in what is our definition of neighbor, just as the lawyer asked. If we believe that our neighbor is the person next to us, then we serve God by responding in the best way possible with discernment and safety, of course maybe picking up that hitchhiker or sharing a few dollars with that family in need. If we take the much broader definition of neighbor, then we serve God in a much larger zone. The response isn't difficult at all. We act swiftly when we hear of a community that's been devastated by an earthquake or tornado or a tsunami. We pour out our compassion when a family has been left homeless because of a disaster. We have nothing to lose. We may even get a closet cleaned out for the rubbish sale because of this call for help. The difficulty arises when we are confronted 
by a need that could directly affect us and causes us a sacrifice in our own part. When we are in a position of some risk, then our Christian faith is truly tested. Picture, if you will, someone who you find particularly hard to deal with, an overbearing boss, a self-righteous relative, or an especially rude neighbor. If we are honest, we have to admit that we do set limits on whom we want to love. But less dramatically, we allow considerations of who is in power or out of power before we decide to cross the line. But Jesus says, show mercy. Go and do likewise. Cross the line. Be unpredictable. Don't stop and overanalyze the societal or political reasons our media use to brainwash us into pausing before filling an empty hand, asking for food or housing or clothing or help or even a cup of hot chocolate. Show mercy. Be the hand of Christ. Go and do likewise. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, you've given us many stories, and they are not meant just to entertain us, but they are to teach us. And not just to teach us, but to do, to embrace and make into reality these stories that touches lives, that changes lives. May this story, this teaching of the Good Samaritan be translated and transform us so that we may transform the world itself. In your name we pray. Amen.